But we also see with that, um, we saw that there was a more selectivity towards some of these shelf life organisms when using PAA. And so that's something too to consider, right? So we've got to start thinking not just pathogens too, which pathogens are very important. We want food safety, but we're going to think, we need to think shelf life too, because our products don't have a very long shelf life, right? We, uh, out of the meats, we're probably one of the shorter shelf life, um, especially for tray packed foods. Um, so we, you know, anything that we can get an extra day maybe is very important, not just for us, but for the consumer as well. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals. Healthy food. Healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. One of AB Vista's core strategies is to give customers the flexibility to do more with less, which is a common theme among many companies and producers in today's industry. As a science-driven company, AB Vista has proven results to help our customers achieve optimum performance using customized programs with our core phytase and xylanase. Hi everyone, welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. I'm your host, Karen Grogan. And on today's show, we're gonna dig into the world of food safety. And my guest today is Dr. Dana Ditto from the University of Wyoming. Welcome to the show, Dana. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Excellent. Um, so, uh, Dana, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about your background? You kind of counted in the category of new faculty there at Wyoming. And um, tell us how you got to where you are in the world of academia. Yeah, of, of course. Um, so I have been across the United States at this point. So it's always a fun story to share kind of how I started. Um, I grew up in Delaware, you know, where the chickens outnumber the people and never really thought that would be the career role, really career role that I would go into. But, you know, that's ultimately what God had in store for me. And I decided to pursue a undergraduate degree in poultry science at Mississippi State University and got into undergraduate research there, looking at um, applied research within um, poultry litter management and applying in-house composting. Did I think that's where I was gonna go for the first researcher project? No, but it led to a lot of opportunity and open doors. So I did that research with Dr. Aaron Keese um, when he was at Mississippi State, and I actually went on to pursue my master's under him as well. In my master's at Mississippi State, I really focused on um, pre-harvest um, food safety. One of the ways that we can target pre-harvest in the poultry industry is really through the diet. So I wanted to really understand if we start feeding organic acids, 
or even a probiotic of lactic acid bacteria, um, how would those two work? And would they improve maybe our gut morphology, gut health, and then Im and improve the back end at processing? So would we have reduced potential pathogens at processing? Um, it was really great experience um, and training that prepared me for my PhD that I pursued at the University of Arkansas under the direction of um, Dr. Stephen Rickey. Uh, so I pursued that in cell and molecular biology, which is just fancy terms where I got to pick my classes. Um, <laughs> so I got to do uh, poultry and um, food safety, which was really where my passion was, was that food safety sector. Um, I started with pre-harvest food safety, again, looking at different um, antimicrobial interventions or in-feed supplements, and then went to post-harvest food safety, which ultimately is what my dissertation was on, was the post-harvest food safety, where I got to look at both organic acids and inorganic acids and how those can be applied to reduce pathogens like Campylobacter and Salmonella and E. coli in the processing facility. Also worked with aqueous ozone and a couple other different products like Amplon. So pretty cool stuff that I got to do there that really opened up a lot of doors, both in the industry as well in academia for me. I actually followed Dr. Stephen Rickey when he went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and pursued, uh, pursued my postdoc there. Um, my postdoc there was not just in poultry, really got to branch out to more meat matrices and expand my pre and post harvest um, intervention strategies, looking at organic and inorganic acids. Um, and that is ultimately what helped me get my academic role here at the University of Wyoming. So I'm an assistant professor. My title is meat microbiology, which I think is really fitting because it's not meat and poultry. Poultry is meat. So, um, but I am able to study um, beef, pork, anything that I want to do as well as poultry. Um, very excited to be here in my role at the University of Wyoming. They're very supportive of my poultry background and how that can also strengthen what we have at the University of Wyoming. Um, so really what I'm targeting now in my research is trying to make these applications more targeted and understanding, so especially at the post-harvest level, if we're looking at alternatives to PAA, what is that implication? Um, are we affecting the microbiome differently of that meat matrices that will then impact shelf life or even maybe help harbor or hinder the harboring of these pathogens like Salmonella and E. coli and Campylobacter, um, as well as trying to um, make applicable quantification and differentiation methods um, so that we can actually accurately say there are 10 cells or 100 cells of salmonella. So really helping with that too, um, not trying to reinvent the wheel, but help the industry along and maybe validate even that research that they're doing out there in the industry with some of these products like the hygiene back system. Um, and then as well, um, really just trying to um, improve food safety and understand um, pathogen um, survivability in, in meat matrices. So really excited. Um, but that's kind of a lot about me. Right. <laughs> Not a little bit, but a no, lot. That's good. So. That's good. So you're in, in terms of, you know, meat microbiology, um, 
let, let's talk just super briefly so we know what, what players we're talking about here. Um, so, so what, uh, what organisms, uh, you know, do we deal, are we focused on? And, you know, in terms of the, you know, sort of um, performance standards from FSIS, um, you know, and that framework that, that we all have to operate under, um, you know, so, sort of what those mean and, and then how, how we do, like, how we are going to um, sort of fine tune our detection. So that's a, a lot of big topics, but we'll start, we'll, we'll start with the bugs. Yeah, so I normally focus on um, Salmonella, Campylobacter, and E. coli. Um, with poultry background, primarily that has been Salmonella and Campylobacter. With me working as well in um, beef, E. coli, right. those shigatoxin are yeah our top ones that our adulterants are very important to continue to knock down and understand. Um, they didn't go away. We're just getting better at reducing them. Um, for Salmonella, which was not an adulterant previously, we are hitting um, a new era and we are, you know, each person has a different opinion on it. Um, but I know it's going to be very hard for the industry um, to make some of these changes. So, you know, um, earlier there was um, of this year, yeah, that the FSS declared um, they're going to make salmonella and adulterant and raw breaded stuffed poultry products. So there have been multiple outbreaks, both in the U.S. and Canada, revolving around that since 2017 and 18. Um, so you can educate the consumer. That's been part of the problem is the consumer's not following directions. All of the directions on the box. This is a partially or not cooked. This is a not cooked product. You have to cook it fully. Yes. It is a raw product. And, you know, with the invention of and having it at home, right? Air fryers, people are making their own directions, are following Google yes, or whatever they're, they're looking social at. media. And, and even just like packaged chicken cooked in an air fryer, you need to check to make sure that it gets to the 165 degrees of fully cooked. But no one mentions that part in their, you know, Instagram posts. So yes, no, no, just just let it let it cook. It'll be fine. Um, but it's not. And so after relabels, after trying to, you know, validate different cooking techniques, putting different boxes, you know, nothing, nothing really worked for that. And so we're still hitting that point. So um, for a while or a couple years, limit of detection really was where they'd start pulling off those raw products. So what you would see is if I believe it was, you could either do 10 or 100 cells was what most of the industry was doing. Um, based on risk of that product, and they would pull that chicken um, from the product if it exceeded that limit of detection. The problem that we have for detection methods is that it is very difficult to get at one cell. Um, if we're talking just standard PCR, no enrichment, a lot of PCR, which is what's utilized to quantify and detect these pathogens in, in different meat settings, especially through the USDA, FSIS, what they recommend, um, a lot of those techniques are hitting between four and nine logs. 
uh, with enrichment-based detection, you can get down to one log. So basic using um, like the hygiene back system, when they use their enrichment-based, you're using log um, growth, right? That log phase is what you're hoping to do that based off of. You then are able to input your cycle threshold and detect based on that whole linear curve that was generated off that log logarithmic growth. Um, so it's it's kind of fancy way to put it, but they're basically able to put an equation in, and you get out of that what your initial starting is because after that enrichment, you have four to nine logs, right? So that's the hope and that's the goal, um, but we're getting more um, sophisticated technology and extraction methods that are enabling us to get down to maybe one cell. Um, and that's, and that's being um, pushed. I know by they've really worked hard, especially on the DNA extraction side. So their detection method um, where you're just saying is salmonella here or not has a different extraction method of that DNA than they do when they start to do the quantification. So they changed up their protocols so that they could get that limit of detection, which is really important. Um, and so we're starting to see a more applicable understanding, something that's more real time. We're still, you know, we're still waiting to get some of those results a couple hours, right? If we're extracting DNA during the cycle. So it's not really in line with perfect production, but we're getting closer to that. We're not waiting 24. We're not waiting 96 hours for a result. We can have that result in maybe four to six hours. So that's that's the hope and the dream. There's a lot of movement to move even further beyond that, um, beyond PCR. But I think right now that's where we're stuck at, and that's where the industry is is working on. Um, and it and it does work. It works well. Um, but you don't. Um, one of my concerns with this whole salmonella as an adulterant. There's 2,600 serotypes. Right. I was just about to right? ask that question. I was like, how do you know that the one you're detecting is a bad player? Exactly. Like, we have exactly. bad players and we have, you know, just, you know, we have like Kentucky. You know, we know it's there. It'll test positive, but it's not, it's not pathogenic. It's not pathogenic. Yes. So, and our, so persistent in yeah, that it's environment. It's very sticky. It hangs around. It's hard for us to get rid of, like, no matter great what. biofilm former. It, it's creating an environment for its friends, basically. Okay, so based off of that framework, we have these ones that, you know, we know we have them in, in poultry production. We know that they're there. Can we get to a detection method that would allow us to detect the ones that are of concern? And that then the, you know, the test is that specific. Is that technology available? So there are some like multi-array methods that people have proposed. It's not as, I think we still have probably five to 10 years to trying to get that many targets. Most PCR, so most of our technology when we do multiplex is limited to five maybe six targets. You might be able to get seven targets with some more expensive machines. But most of the commercial targets that we can do based on the channels of fluorescence, when we are able to do qPCR, you'll have five channels. 
So you can have one internal control, which normally we do an amplification control to make sure that we're not botching the kit each time, that some, everything's going right. And then we have our four actual targets. So, you know, that's really easy with Campylobacter when you're looking at three different, right? Can't be coli, jejunine. Yes, you have only three, not the 2,600 that we potentially have with Exactly. So, you know, maybe that ends up in the future. Somehow we're able to identify using maybe next generation sequencing and then do qPCR simultaneously. Maybe that's something that we can target towards and doing that quicker. And there are stuff, um, not stuff, there are sequencing platforms where you can sequence on the spot, but those, you know, they're not going to have large library sets. So you may be doing one genome at a a time, right? One bacteria at a time. Um, And that you still have to culture to get that. So we're limited some on that. Um, But I think in the future, it would be possible. There's also... Um, other types of instrumentations that could potentially do this. Um, But they're so specific. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I have a friend that um, her husband works for a company making them, but the equipment is so specific that we would have to have an extensive library. Um, But again, you still have to get back down to a single isolate. And we're not picking single isolates when we go and take a carcass rinse from the plant we're taking, we then have to, to do that whole um, streaking for isolation multiple times and then send that off. So we're still limited. What we could do is quantification and then maybe do CRISPR serotyping at the end. I know that Nikki Chariot, so brilliant, is most likely working on how to quantify and do CRISPR serotyping at the same time, um, which would be phenomenal. That's also great technology um, and helps us to better understand what our populations look like because they're not consistent from pre-harvest to post-harvest. So, um, but that could be another solution. Sorry, it was Raman spectrometry is what I was trying to remember. So Raman is very specific. Um, they use it in a lot of drug applications. So if you're a pharmaceutical company, um, they can pinpoint that or say yay or nay if it's, um, up to the standards of purity. Um, so that's another one. People have started to look at it, but like I said, it's it's very specific. And again, we'd have to get back down to pure isolates and that is time consuming. We're talking about four to five days to have a pure isolate to send off. Right. And, and especially, you know, for salmonels, we typically do, you know, some type of an enrichment or, you know, selective media. And then you get, you know, you pick a colony or three or four, depending on, you know, what, what, what's there. And then there's an identification step. So in, in this framework that we started the conversation with of labeling it as an adulterant, um, how do we, like, how do we keep business flow you know, commerce moving, if our detection methods current, you know, maybe those, those steps get shortened a little bit with some PCR or, you know, real time, you know, it may take a day, things would get, you know, at that last step identification part, but then we're still quantifying. 
So in terms of adulterant labeling that you're talking about zero, like the results have to come back completely negative. Yeah, I think it's like you have to have below one cell is the limit of what the actual directive states. So I mean, you would be having a really hard time trying to keep that flow because as the current setting, like we've talked about, it's not real time. Uh, You can, if it, if we're saying it's less than one cell, then you would probably, you could get that answer within four to six hours. So you might be able to get that, but you can't get all 2,600 serotypes. You, you won't know that. So, you know, there is, and maybe, maybe that is what their thinking was of why to declare it is we just don't have the technology. But at the same point, if we knew, hey, it's Typhimerium infantis, uh, enteritidis, those are, those are our adulterants. We could target those three very easy. Or if we chose the top five, you know, we, we could target those. Um, so in terms of the, you know, sort of the regulatory environment, it, you know, it, it's a very specific product that is, that is linked to this. So it's a, it's a very, you know, narrow segment of our industry. And however, when we start down a regulatory pathway, the fear is that it's going to expand to all poultry products. Um, and, you know, the industry has made incredible strides in terms of reducing um, a lot of the things that you talked about and probably done on your research in terms of pre-harvest and post-harvest. You know, we have to use, I'd describe it as we have to use all the tools in the toolbox to get to, you know, low levels going into the plant. And then we have to use all of our plant interventions to get it even lower. So it do you think that re- further reductions can occur? And if you had a crystal ball, how would those, you know, how do we continue? Or have we sort of met this sort of biological threshold um, of sort of how we understand the ecology of, you know, these particular bugs? Like camping, we don't have a lot of interventions. You know, we don't have things that reduce it. Like, so are we just to where we can what we can do? Um, Or are there interventions that are left out there that we need, you know, the next brilliant mind to come up with? So that's actually a really good point. Um, One of the things, you know, you said that we've used all the tools in our toolkit. So multi-hurdle approach is, is very important. One of the things that I've noticed more recently is we're throwing parasitic acid left and right in the processing facility. Everybody uses everybody uses the PA. Yeah. And everyone has a different formulation. And I will tell you they're not all equal. Um, some the stabilizers make a big difference based on the product. So there are PAAs that are better than others. We've seen potential, I've had potential research that we have seen um, that effect. They're not all equal. They also have different hydrogen peroxide concentrations as well. But when we're focusing on one product, right, we're not really doing a multi-hurdle approach. They're really just having the same hurdle in multiple places. And we're applying it in the water, which is, you know, we've got some physical action there. And we, physical action with water, we normally get a one log reduction. Right. Just just the washing of the Just the washing. Just the washing. We get one log. Every time that I have done a study, I have a wash control with water. It is about a one log reduction every time. 
It doesn't matter if it's, you know, we're doing it on a thigh versus a whole carcass or a turkey. You know, it's normally a one log reduction. And then you add your chemical and you might get an additional one log reduction. I've seen people report two log reductions. I have never truly seen that. So it's two logs when you compare it to a no treated, no wash control. But you have that physical action plus the chemical, you can get a two log reduction. Um, but if we're not changing out the mode of action, right, of the chemical intervention, we can have persistent populations. Maybe that's why we start to see more Salmonella infantis. I mean, it's, it has been seen that not only does it have a mechaplasmid, but there is some, some notions that it's more acid tolerant organism than its other Salmonella siblings, right? So there's that concern. One of the things that I've really tried to do is PAA is an organic acid. Let's try an inorganic acid or let us use other products and, you know, different mode of actions, trying to understand that. And that's really something that I'm trying to get into with my research is, okay, what is the phenotypic and genotypic response of Salmonella or Campylobacter to them? Because like you said, Campy doesn't respond really well to anything. I mean, I can look at it the wrong way and I can't get it to grow in the lab. Right. It doesn't grow. It's in incredibly impossible to grow in a lab. Like you have to do all these extra special things to just, you know, tuck it in bed and make it grow. But I, extra you know, special equipment, yes, extra money. It's spent. so finicky. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But then it's persistent. It's persistent. Foods. Yes. It likes friends. That's one of the things that we have seen is that normally it's community structure it, it likes friends. Even if you're getting onto some of these selective medias, I know I just completely jumped, but it's such an interesting thing that when you do the selective media and you would try to take an isolate from it, and then say you go to take it to multi-type, molly, like, yeah, type, molly right? Tough. Yeah, molly top, yeah. It's not camping. And I had a student that was doing a lot of um, retail level Right. Um, different. Yep. He would try and isolate Campylobacter and a couple other different pathogens at the retail level and just different companies. That's just part of the project. Just yep. as a surveillance kind of what's in yep. the case. surveillance okay. project. Yes. And um, one of his issues is he was using all of the different types of media. Can't be CFEX. He's using a chromogenic auger. I got him to start using um, modified charcoal. So that MCCDA. And then I have them add a few extra antibiotics to it. So it's a little bit more selective for poultry. Um, and still, still having issues. And then I was like, well, go get a pure culture and let's see if it grows. The pure culture grows. Fine. So it's, you know. Your culture methods work. Just finding it in the, the meat product is difficult. Yeah. And especially, you know, one of the other things that we might not be picking it up. Um, I heard... Um, oh, we have a campy negative or no campy and a processing facility. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. No, you just start finding it. <laughs> yeah. Um, one, of, one of the concerns that I started thinking about is how long are we holding our samples prior to getting it to the lab? Know, to the so lab. They hold on and to those things forever. Yes. And campy is very sensitive. So if I even store it on a plate, I'm not going to store it on a plate for probably more than a week. And even then I don't trust it. 
um, to reuse it to streak onto a new plate or to use it as an inoculation because it doesn't survive very well. It's microphilic. It needs that environment. And so if we're not providing that environment and we're then, and we're keeping it much colder than it's used to, it's not like salmonella who can grow literally when you look at it. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Everywhere and will grow just here. Yeah, exactly. You could put it on the countertop and it'll grow, right? We, we've got, um, we've done multiple studies where we've done that. At. They're very different, very, very different, you know, bugs. All of our methods, all of our enrichments that we have used were based off salmonella. And a lot of that, especially the buffered peptone water and the neutralized buffered peptone water, we based that on salmonella. And now we're expecting similar results in Campy. And, you know, we've done work too, where we've looked at the selectivity of buffered peptone water and neutralizing buffered peptone water. And what this does with enrichments that you're already utilizing based on USDA, FSIS, the Microbiological Laboratory Guidebook, all those methodology, um, it changes that microbial ecology on that plate completely. Um, and you start to lose campy when you're looking at campy enrichments because of that buffer, that neutralizing buffered peptone water. So that's also something we have to take into account. You know, we may not be picking it up because we may not be using sampling correctly. Yes, exactly. You know, and we might be holding samples too long and buffered peptone water is not going to allow it. Uh, a stable environment for to si- survive too long. Um, so that's a concern, right? Um, and But when we go to reduce it, we really have to understand what we're using to reduce it in the processing facility because, right, PAA reduces salmonella really well, but I haven't seen that same reduction on Campy. Um, normally across the board, I see maybe a half a log reduction in addition to water, um, no matter what really antimicrobial we use. Um, it's been pretty consistent, whether it's acidified sodium chloride or if we maybe use um, the safe foods there, um, uh, CPC, or if we use PAN. It's, it's very consistent across that board. Um, and maybe that's just, again, it's, it's campy. It's right. a hard bug. It's, it's a different organism. We have to approach it differently. Yes, you do. But I do think that we can do further reductions. We just need to understand our multi-hurdles a little bit better and really start to apply them in targets. You know, what is our goal and that for that step beyond just reducing pathogens? Um, one of our, you know, my concerns too is shelf life. If we're using PAA, that's an organic acid that, you know, may have a pKa around, what, 4.5, a little bit higher, um, still acidic, but it's where our lactics are probably going to resume growth. And so we've done some shelf life studies where we've looked at pAa versus an inorganic acid and looked for those not just indicator plating, but also microbiome. So what is that microbial ecology? Yep. And so we saw, you know, a shortened shelf life compared to the inorganic acid, which had a PKA of like 1.9 versus a much, you know, higher for PAA. But we also see with that, um, 
we saw that there was a more selectivity towards some of these shelf life organisms when using PAA. And so that's something too to consider, right? So we've got to start thinking not just pathogens too, which pathogens are very important. We want food safety, but we're going to think, we need to think shelf life too, because our products don't have a very long shelf life, right? We, uh, out of the meats, we're probably one of the shorter shelf life, um, especially for tray packed foods. Um, so we, you know, anything that we can get an extra day maybe is very important, not just for us, but for the consumer as well. And, and in terms of that, in your work, in terms of looking at, you know, almost like as, as you're describing this, like we need like almost like a rotate. Are you talking about like a rotation system in plant in terms of plant chemicals or using things in conjunction so that you're getting like kind of like a two-step knockdown? So, or both. Like what, what do you, what do you think is kind of like, you know, application of this research in terms of, you know, in a poultry processing plant, you know, next step. Okay. Yes. Everybody's using the same PAA everywhere. Your research is sort of fine tuning it. Okay. We need to look at it from this approach. So rotation type of system or like almost like a two-step kind of thing. So less on rotation and more on a multi-hurdle. So a two-step process. So say if we decide in the chiller we're going to use PAA, well, let's in the post-chiller use maybe an inorganic acid or maybe use CPC. Um, CPC is really good at, um, we, we saw that it had a differential effect between typhomerium fanus. It actually reduced um, some of those, those key genes um, that regulate invasion. Um, and so we did like a skin invasion assay and we saw that different effect and that response of the genetic component. So that's, you know, adding more of those components, multi-hurdle. So you're getting a different type of mode of action throughout the, the facility. Um, and then maybe, so we've got PAA and the chiller, the post-chiller, we have CPC, or maybe we've got an inorganic acid, and then we've got a park dip if we're talking about, right. you know, Yep. then you can go and add something else to that. Um, maybe in a, a low concentration of acidified sodium chloride or something else. Um, but really, one of the, the points of the research I want to understand is how does it impact? And when we start adding that that multi-hurdle approach. So we add one on top of the other, right? So if say we transfer salmonella and we've stressed it out with PAA, what's the effect of CPC after that? Well, what's the effect? Because there's not a lot of research to look at those effects. You know, we're going to start in probably a, in vitro, we're going to have to, so we can see those effects without multiple um, other factors being considered, but then we'll go on to meet nature C, but that's multi-hurdle. But then also, if we see a differential effect between Salmonella and Campylobacter with some of these um, different antimicrobial interventions or even novel interventions, then we want to make sure that, that okay, your plant has a campy problem. Well, I recommend this product at this, sequ this, this sequence, and that'll help you get Campylobacter reduced. And you'll still have similar Salmonella reductions, most likely, because we know salmonella is a little bit easier to target, but we know that we can also effectively reduce campy too. So kind of twofold for multi-hurdle, but also specific to pathogen of concern. Um, and if you think even there's a serovar of concern, 
that's something hopefully that I'm, I want to look at too, is not just cocktails or individual, you know, Sarah, I want to look at those individuals as well. So is there a difference between type of Miriam and, you know, Infantis, like I previously said, or is there a difference between Campylobacter dejuni and Campylobacter coli or Lari? Um, and, and this applies more than just the poultry industry too, because we do have similar um, uses in the other meat industry as well. Um, I know the beef industry uses PA as well, and so does the pork. So that's just one of those things. Um, but really, yes, trying to apply it differently, not just, um, I also want to apply physical um, after the in vitro assay, that physical component as well. So rinsing, or if we're talking about a scalding system, so temperature is also an important component to include, really trying to include those factors and understanding the response of the pathogen to those factors. Um, then hopefully we can say, you know, you got a problem with this, here's the, the map that you need to use to get to it. Um, rather than just saying, oh, here's my product, I sell PAA, right. let's get you some PAA and it'll <laughs> solve all your problems. Right. And I'm not saying it's a bad product, yeah. it's a great product and it's worked really well. But when we start to have a dependence on one product, we start to see selectivity and that's something that we really need to be concerned about. It's not just selectivity, but tolerance buildup of certain microorganisms. Absolutely. I think, I think we, you know, we, we put different interventions and then we are, you know, we will control certain serovars, then that allows other serovars to become predominant, um, both pre-harvest and, you know, everything that we're doing is just selecting and, um, you know, it's probably how we got to where Infantis, you know, 10 years ago, no one even talked about Infantis. It was, or maybe even less than 10, but, you know, these serovars sort of emerge. Um, so our, our control strategies are, are definitely influencing um, that ecology. Um, we have just a few more minutes left since we've talked, we focused a lot on the plant. Um, and I know you have some background in terms of pre-harvest strategies, and that's another, another area um, that, that we look at. So um, anything, are, are you doing any work, continuing work on that side or is everything really focused for you on, on the plant or are you continuing to look at nutrition and how that influences, um, you know, the gut microbiome and, and these commensals that we're looking at in terms of salmonella and can't be. Yeah. So I am, I do focus a lot on post-harvest in my current position, but one of my strong beliefs is that we can't only control it post-harvest, like there's only so much you can do on the back end. You have to be proactive about it as well. So at the pre-harvest level, I still have some um, goals and aspirations in that and um, still help out with in-feed um, supplementation and how that impacts post-harvest food safety or even looking at the microbial ecology. So um, recently just published a paper with Christy Sagerty looking at um, a botanical blend um, of an encapsulated botanical blend on a necrotic enteritis model. And so um, what we were able to see there, which was kind of cool, is that um, you didn't necessarily see a lot of big differences in the microbiome, but we saw differences within the core um, microbiome um, over that study. And so, you know, with the supplementation, you were, we improved some of our other characteristics as well, but 
with that core microbiome, we started to have a more selectivity towards um, a normal microbiome. So some of those really good microorganisms like Viracu microbiota, it's a very hard word to say, promise you. But. Oh, yeah. You look at some of those like ones where they show those big charts with all the colors and you're like, what's the name of that bacteria? I can't even pronounce that. I chose I chose the wrong career for my pronunciation. But um, and then so, they change the name. We were just talking about that yesterday, how the names keep changing. And it's like just when you like you're teaching students or you're like, oh, by the way, you know, like uh, I feel like we were even talking about Clostridium. And one of them has been reclassified. Like it's not even, and I was like, oh, I just can't, it's hard to keep up with that. There was, um, I noticed that the other day on Wikipedia of oh, all places. All places. Told me that a whole family was renamed and I'm like, are, no, it's a whole Wait. phyla, not a whole family. A oh, whole phyla, phyla was renamed. Well, that's yeah, a whole phyla. And I'm like, well, yes. I wish they would have let the scientific community know about right. this. Right. Um, and it is backed up. It's published paper. It is like, yeah. that's a little too much. But um, I'm also kind of interested in not just um, in feed supplementation, but welfare as well, um, as well as stressors that the birds um, or animals might have to go through. Right. As we know, stress can be a big player on increasing. Stress definitely increases salmonella shedding. Major. Yes. Yes. And the pathogenicity. So, um, you know, my old PI, Dr. Ricky, one of the things that he also has shown in his research is that pathogenicity, um, it would be increased during feed withdrawal. So it's very important for some of these key stress points. Um, I partnered with um, Dr. Sammy Drudy at the University of Arkansas, wrote a, a seed grant. So hopefully that gets funded. We're waiting on that. But wanting to investigate really the impact of heat stress um, on the shelf life of poultry products. When we understand that there's gonna be bacterial translocation, there's gonna be you know, that increase in gut dysbiosis, that's all that should all translate to post harvest. And so we really want to see that or understand that, and then hopefully create a framework for the industry to work around that. So. Maybe we need to use different packaging techniques coupled with different antimicrobial, um, antimicrobial products so that we can then prolong that shelf life when we know that these products are going to have an influx of overall bacteria and maybe even shelf life spoilage organisms. So that's something that him and I really wanted to focus on as well as focusing on understanding salmonella establishment during that time and how that um, translate to our finished product. So you're, you're talking about heat stress from, uh, like a, like just prior to processing, like in the actual bird, correct? Or during, during, during processing, housing. during yeah, housing. No, during so, housing. Yep. So this in that last three to four days prior to processing um, or even earlier, 42, day 20 to 42. So that's a big window. That is a big window. And so we have two kind of models for this. We have a cyclic model, which we will probably see more in like states like Arkansas um, or maybe the southern states. I will tell you, Mississippi did not cycle significantly. Um, we normally held about a five degree difference between. Right. It's just hot. It's just hot. It's yeah. just hot. It's hot and humid. Um, but you would see more of a constant heat 
like that that we're we're proposing in more of tropical regions as well. Um, but really, we just want to understand because global warming, no matter what you believe, climate change is happening. Climate change is happening. It's just climate change. The Earth goes through cycles. It's just part of it. And our industry, I think, very certainly will have to adapt. Like I was. I was actually talking to someone in California last week and like just the huge snows that they had, the melts, they've had farms flood, like things like that, like things that used to not be in a flood, you know, just, you know, all those environmental kind of things that you didn't have to think about. And the farm has been unreachable, you know, like it. So a lot of things our industry will have to deal with and, and heat stress definitely is is probably going to be one of those. So. Oh yeah. And I mean, we've dealt with it before we do have very controlled you know, climate, but even with, you know, using wind tunnel systems, you're still going to have some issues. You can only cool them so much like that. It has the capacity to only cool so much. And then we still have, you know, parts of like, especially the turkey industry, you may still have curtain sided barns and they don't, you know, necessarily have the same cooling strategies. So a lot to work out. Eight years ago, but when I, you know, worked on the East Coast and interned and on the East Coast, we still had absolutely open, open, yes, open side in Delaware, yep. not yeah, even current open yeah. sided. Yeah, they're they're probably reduced in number by now, but yes, yes. significantly. Yes. But yes. Uh, you know, even back then, so that was 2013. That was very surprising to even see that in 2013. So actually, that's 10 years ago. Wow, I am showing I know. my age. Well, <laughs> I got I got a few years on you, so we're you know we're good. we won't age ourselves. Yeah, no. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adiseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com. I think we've covered a lot of topics, um, and you definitely have some interesting research in the works. Um, If you had one piece of advice to give uh, you know, we have students often listen to us. So what kind of advice would you give a student that's interested in sort of um, food safety and processing? Where would you guide them? So one of the things that was the most beneficial for me, so this is a great advice, I believe, in my own opinion, is when you have colleagues or fellow students doing research projects, take the time to help them on their big days. And it will give you so much experience. It helped me to branch more easily from pre-harvest to post-harvest and even establish my, my master's 
and doctoral research, experimental design, because I was able to see what they had done and why they had done it and how they had done it. Um, that experience, you, you can't necessarily always understand from reading a paper when you're a first year master's student, but you can understand when you see you can understand it when you're harvesting organs or oral cavaging salmonellas, and you understand how all of that works when you're part of the team. That is great advice. That's awesome. Well, Dana, thanks for the chat today, and thanks for joining us on the Poultry Podcast Show. And uh, it was uh, a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. It was a pleasure.